Fill the Gap, the official podcast series of the CMT Association, hosted by David Lundgren and Tyler Wood. This monthly podcast will bring veteran market analysts and money managers into conversations that will explore the interviewee's investment philosophy, their process, and decision-making tools. By learning more about their key mentors, early influences, and their long careers in financial services, Fill the Gap will highlight lessons our guests have learned over many decades and multiple market cycles. Join us in conversation with the men and women of Wall Street who discovered, engineered, and refined the discipline of technical market analysis. Fill the Gap is brought to you with support from Optima, a professional charting and data analytics platform. Whether you are a professional analyst, portfolio manager, or trader, Optima provides advanced technical and quantitative software to help you discover financial opportunities. Candidates in the CMT program gain free access to these powerful tools during the course of their study. Learn more at Optima.com. Hello, Dave Lundgren, and welcome to Fill the Gap. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing excellent, Tyler. It's great to see you here on the video, but it was, it was even better to see you recently in New York at the CMT Association board meeting. I haven't done that in a couple of years, so it's been it's always great to catch up with you uh, virtually, but in person was even more fun. And to see the rest of the, the team as well was just fantastic. Absolutely. Many exciting things to come for the association in the months ahead. Right. Right. But today... We're talking to a former colleague of yours from Fidelity Investments. Tell us a little bit about Urian Timmer, Dave. I mean, there's much to say about Urian. You know, he, he was, um, I think when I think about all of the, the macro strategists who really influenced my thinking and how, how to really appreciate and respect how the macro trends in the markets can influence equities specifically, which is what I was focused on then and now. I, I would say, you know, Urian is absolutely at the top of the list. Our offices were located right down the hallway from each other at Fidelity. I was there from 99 to 02, and he was, of course, there before then and since then. So he's been there quite a while. He's a mainstay strategist there at Fidelity. For, for me, this particular conversation was especially uh, a joy for me only because it, it just brought me back to my Fidelity days and, and reminded me, just as it was at Wellington, just how important and how embedded the technical conversation is in and amongst these, you know, one of the largest equity managers in the world. Uh, you know, Ned Johnson, of course, was a very heavy user of charts, which we talk about a bit with Urian. Mm -hmm. And just just to have this conversation with Urian and just to hear and see how these technical concepts, you know, weave their ways in and out of these these various fundamental conversations throughout the hallways of Fidelity is just a really great reminder of how holistic that company is, but also how important technicals can be when you actually really are focused on beating a benchmark. Absolutely. I think for me, seeing macro strategists or even economists who rely so heavily on core concepts in the field of technical analysis like relative strength and intermarket analysis, understanding how to organize data in a visual way that helps you communicate these ideas. Urian is a you know, yeah, quintessential exactly. example of one of the great macro strategists of our generation, but also just to think about how so many economists have brought our toolkit into the practice of what they do and how they communicate their ideas, which I, I think is really powerful. This was a fantastic interview. Uh, you and I could probably sit for uh, for weeks on end picking Urian's brain and, and diving deep because uh, his encyclopedic knowledge of what's happening worldwide is, uh, is really quite incredible. Uh, for all of our listeners to fill the gap, uh, make sure that uh, you're marking your calendars for 2023, the 50th anniversary of the CMT Association. It's gonna be celebrated here in New York April 26th through the 28th next year. And folks like Urian and many others will be joining us to share thoughts on, on where the markets are at next spring, as well as their process and tools. So Dave, without any further delay, let's dive into our interview with Urian Timmer here on Fill the Gap. Welcome to Fill the Gap, the official podcast of the CMT Association. My name is Dave Lundgren, and as always, I'm joined by Tyler Wood, Managing Director of the CMT Association. 
This month, Tyler and I are joined in conversation by Urian Timmer. As a CMT charter holder, Urian is the Director of Global Macro at Fidelity Investments in Boston. Now, normally at this point, I would run through a quick chronology of our guest's career, but in Urian's case, he's been at Fidelity for nearly 30 years. So I had the good fortune of overlapping with Urian during my time at Fidelity, where our offices were located a few spaces away from each other on the perimeter of the infamous Fidelity chart room, which we discussed in last in our last episode. Now, one thing becomes abundantly clear when, you, when talking markets and strategy with Urian. He's a super passionate about the subject with a most extensive knowledge of the inner and outer workings of markets in their macro drivers. And despite sitting atop the macro perch of one of the largest asset managers in the world, Urian maintains a rare level of humility and is still insatiable appetite for more knowledge as, and he shares his wisdom regularly with all of us via his highly followed social media uh, accounts on LinkedIn and Twitter. Urian Timmer, welcome to Fill the Gap. Thank you. That was a most most generous introduction. <laughs> well, I try, and I meant every word of it. So, uh, in our in our brief uh, overlap at Fidelity, I, I learned a tremendous amount from you, and I and it was in, it was in that moment having the good fortune of being able to attend your quarterly macro sessions that you would do there in the chart room. I learned two things from you: the importance of macro and the importance of clothing choice. <laughs> I remember you would <laughs> you would uh, you would you would show up very serious conversation with very, you know very high intellect, very very deep knowledge of what you were talking about, but there you would stand with your pink pants with dark blue uh, elephants or, or or maybe they were whales in a, in a sweater torn over your shoulders, which I just thought was a great contrast. But I, I always took it to mean that you were, you were not afraid to make a statement. And, and, yeah. and you certainly were that way in your in your macro yeah. reviews as well. But My um, outfits have only gotten louder since then. Well, I, I have to say your, your, your sense of fashion is definitely sharpened, but it's also I, I always attribute it to your your willingness to just stand out from the crowd, which, you know, you do in many in many ways in your life. So I uh, we, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. I mean, you're one of those uh, quote unquote celebrities from social media who probably doesn't need much of an introduction, but for our purposes, particularly with our listening audience, it might be of particular interest to learn a little bit about your career. And then more importantly, more succinctly, maybe what actually got you to choose to sort of meander down this path of technical analysis, given the choices you had. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. Thank you. So I started in the industry 37 years ago. My first 10 were working for a, a Dutch bank. I'm, I'm a Dutch citizen, dual citizen, I should say. Um, and uh, I started by taking the the only job that was offered where the employer was willing to give me some help in getting a work permit, which as a foreign student uh, graduating from a U.S. college, uh, obviously is essential. So a Dutch bank was willing to go to bat for me. And that's literally the reason why I went to New York to work for that bank. Um, and I actually started as a corporate banking trainee. And, you know, if there was ever something I had no interest in, it would be that, but I figured, let me just take what's offered and I'll figure out the rest later. And as it turned out, uh, a few months after I started, that bank opened up a capital markets division in New York uh, as a primary dealer, because this is a large Dutch institution with um, with a large book of, of treasuries in the US as a primary dealer. And so that's how I got involved in the markets. And I started as a bond geek, basically. I was, I was mm. in the bond market. I didn't know anything about charts and I was executing executing these trades and I got, you know, learned about the bond market. This was in the second half of the 80s, of course, the crash of 87 and then early 90s, the Greenspan cycle. And I learned that um, in order to understand anything about the markets in general, you need to understand how interest rates and the bond market works, because even when you look at you know, valuation in the stock market, you have to figure out what interest rates are, are doing. Uh, so in that on that perch, you know, I had like the really old Bloomberg, the the stack of the four screens with the amber, yeah. you know, letters. It was like it was that, that those were the days, right? So, yeah. and then you you're just watching the markets, right? You're waiting for trades to come in, and then you do what everyone else does. You're you're sitting at that trading turd, looking at at screens and charts, and you start getting newsletters and things like that. And and then it just became a hobby to start plotting this stuff and to start writing about it. Uh, so I've got kind of you know an interest in in writing. And and in explaining things visually, which is something that, of course, uh, you and I both experienced uh, at Fidelity because our, our then chairman was a very visual person. That's why we right. have a chart room in the first place. Um, 
And so I got I got in, into charting, but it was mostly the bond market. And then in uh, 10 years later, Fidelity came looking for uh, a chartist in their bond market, uh, in their bond, bond uh, fixed income division. So I moved over to Fidelity to become a fixed income technical analyst. You know, talk about inside baseball. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I quickly learned that I wanted to do more than chart bond yields or bond prices because there's, you know, there's a lot more, uh, a lot more onion to peel than just the bond market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started expanding my skill set to, you know, obviously to equities, currencies, commodities, just looking at more holistically uh, um, what the markets uh, can teach us. And the other thing I learned working at Fidelity, as you well know, uh, Dave, is that, you know, Fidelity has a very rich tradition of having technical analysts there. The chart room, of course, um, speaks for itself. But most of the money is, ra- is managed by portfolio managers who uh, who understand technicals and appreciate them. But that's not their primary driver, right? They look at fundamentals. They look at companies, spot, stock-specific, um, you know, uh, ideas earn, driven by earnings and market share and all that kind of stuff. And so I quickly realized that, for me to broaden my audience, um, and, and I, I needed to kind of speak the language that most of that audience spoke, and I started quickly uh, expanding my toolkit from just charts or just technical patterns to macro fundamentals, so earnings, monetary policy, all that stuff. And at the end of the day, a chart is a chart, right? We're, we're just we're just visually depicting market information, and whether that information is technical or fundamental or quantitative. To me, it, it's it's neither here nor there, um, and so that that kind of was how my my career grew. And I started writing more. I started making more charts. I, I probably have an an arsenal of you know thousand plus charts. They're all in Excel, which people find hard to believe. <laughs> um, but you know, you you build on that, right? After a couple of decades, you you develop a pretty bo- good toolkits, and some of those tools you discard because they worked for one cycle, and then they don't work anymore, um, and other other things you you keep growing with, um, and then with each passing year, you know you kind of put a little bit more personality on the charts. Uh, so to, to the point where I think someone on Twitter just called me the the Picasso of charts. That it's like it becomes <laughs> part of your your self expression in, in a way. Yeah. It becomes a creative outlet. So that that's that's essentially my career in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, you know I I, I think the whole. Uh, one of the things that I think about when I think about the charts that I've seen from you over the years is just your your strong grasp of unique data visualization techniques, which Tyler and I have talked about quite a bit in terms of like what the sort of the next frontier is for technical analysis. It's 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 uh it's we from the very foundations of of uh, of technical analysis has always been data visualizations of very of various forms, whether it, whether it be point and figure or bar charts or or candlesticks. Um, yeah. Now we're talking well, yeah, about and, the VWAP, chart, et cetera. Yeah, and a chart should tell a story, right? I, I, I do not like one-dimensional charts that has a line of the S&P on it. Like, that doesn't help me. Uh, yeah. But a chart yeah. should kind of make you ask questions, and then it should answer those questions at the same time. And, you know, Edward Tufte, of course, we all know who he is. He, he literally wrote the book about data visualization, and uh, he was certainly an inspiration during my formative years as a, as a chartist. Right. You know, when you, when you think about macro analysis, I'm, just, I'm curious if there are two or three sort of touch points that you always go back to that you know are sort of the, the oil that sort of keeps the gears working in the macro world so that you need to make sure that these things are are, you know, what these two or three things are doing before you even think about looking at other charts. Are, are there, is there anything like that? And then you you just interestingly mentioned that there were some things in the past that had worked in prior cycles that, that no longer work. Are there new things that are working? So maybe you can touch a little bit about, like, where do you start from your macro perspective? Uh, I Well, I, I certainly um, – so my my – just to go off to, to the fundamental side, to go to the dark side for a moment. That's quite right. <laughs> um, you know, the discounted cash flow model, which is, you know, very, very fundamental, um, uh, I think is is an important lens, even if you're not purely a fundamentalist, um, to look at the markets through. Because essentially in a DCF model, you put in a cash flow or a projected cash flow in the numerator, and that could be for 
a stock for the S&P. It could be a company if you're a business person. It could be a piece of real estate, right, where you're, the rent that you're going to get on that property. Um, and that goes in the numerator. And then the, the, the interest rate, the cost of capital goes in the denominator. And I mentioned earlier the importance of understanding how the bond market works. So you, you discount future cash flows by an interest rate to get to a present value of those cash flows. And when I think about the stock market in particular, but also the bond market, you know, everything ends up flowing through that lens, right? You think about what the Fed is doing and the importance of the Fed, you know, tightening policy right now. Uh, you juxtapose that against, you know, valuation, the PE ratio or the equity risk premium. And you look at what, you know, the earnings picture, where we are in the earnings cycle, like everything, every element of the market's performance can be somehow explained or filtered through that that DCF model, and then, you know, to go over to the technical side, and and you know this from your your days at Fidelity, uh, one of the things we can do as as technicians uh, in a otherwise kind of fundamentally oriented, um, you know, environment, is to uh, have the charts be a sanity check or a second opinion, right? So if if my DCF model says that the mark that the S and P should go to five thousand or six thousand. And the chart looks like crap, you know. Like that should give me some pause. Like, what what am I missing? You know, it, it, because we know about the efficient market theory or hypothesis. We know that markets are very efficient in pricing in everything that's known very quickly. Uh, but that doesn't mean the market's always right, right? The market is just incorporating uh, the kind of the collective uh, wisdom of the of the of every investor on the planet and the trillions of dollars that those investors manage. Uh, and that's reflected in the price. So I believe in the efficient market hypothesis from that perspective. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the collective wisdom is correct, right? The market can be dead wrong as, as it as it often is, right? And you can argue that at major inflection points, the market's always wrong because otherwise it wouldn't be a major inflection point. And so the market could be wrong about where the how far the Fed needs to push it or, or whether the economy is going to push earnings growth into contraction. And so the charts can can help us get a sense of, you know, if, if a chart, if the price pattern of a chart represents the collective consciousness of the market, which I would argue that it does, then that's a very good form of discipline as an investor or portfolio manager to have. And that's one of the things we do, or at least my colleagues in the chart room do, and, and, and you did as well, is to, you know, so if, if you have, if you follow a, a stock, and it's either widely owned by the portfolio managers and it looks like, you know, like dog shit. Um, <laughs> you're going to go in front of that portfolio manager saying, like, do you really want to own this? And, and maybe you do. But maybe the person says, well, I realize the chart doesn't look like much, but I think it will change. Then that's fine. But then but at least it, it gives you the kind of that second opinion and that sanity check. And, and so that's something that I always look at. So if the narrative in the market is very popular pessimistic, but the chart looks like a really strong base, then that that gives me something to, to be excited about. But again, I always weigh that against what the fundamentals are. And like, I don't know any more than anyone else whether earnings growth is going to be 10 or 5 or 0, or whether the Fed goes to 3.5 or 4 or 5. Uh, but I know what the market expects the Fed to do and, and, then, and then what's priced in. And if too much is priced in, then there's an opportunity there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm glad you wrapped it up that way because what I, what I always like to think about is, I, I personally think like the market is always right directionally. So whatever direction it's going in, it's a it's a it's a validated direction because that's the market's it's the wisdom of the crowd. But there's no doubt that that direction can sometimes take on a life of its own, and that's why we have bubbles. That's why we have crashes. So it goes too far, but the direction is often right, always right. But it sometimes goes too far. Tyler, you got something? No, I was I was going to bring it back to the uh, bond trading desk uh, and find out if if you used technical analysis or any of those concepts in your early days. Just thinking about how much time your clients had to prepare their trade idea and their thesis and do their research, and then what did you have? Twenty four hours to uh, to execute on the bank side. That's uh, that's not a very no, fair I, game. Yeah, I mean, I got into technical analysis by looking by following the bond market. Um, and, you know, again, you know, early 90s, uh, the Greenspan cycle, we had a, a major bear market in, in the bond market at the time. And actually, it's funny, 
uh, when I think back about highlights of my career, uh, one of them was when I interviewed at Fidelity in late 94, early 95. And my last interview was with Ned Johnson, uh, which, of course, you know, that that drives the fear into a person who doesn't know him <laughs> yet. Right. And it was a great conversation. We just sat in his office for an hour, talked markets like he didn't ask me about my qualifications or whatever. Um, but another one uh, that happened shortly before then was actually um, when I was at this bank looking to leave, and I ended up at Fidelity, of course, where I still am. But uh, I had an, an interview with uh, with Paul Tudor Jones, a very, you know, obviously we all know who he is. And I went to his office downtown on, I think it was on, on Liberty Street, if I'm not mistaken. And he had, you know, he obviously is a larger than life person, still is, and certainly was back then. And I sat in his office at this U-shaped desk he had, and he had this huge Tellerate screen. Remember Tellerate? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're really dating ourselves here. Now you're dating yourself. Yeah. And, and he, had <laughs> yeah. The, he had the long bond on it. And and one of the first questions he asked was, is that a fourth wave or a fifth or, or something else? You know, but it was an Elliott wave question. And so, yeah. uh, so yes, you know, I, I uh, looked at a lot of Elliott wave stuff. And then the same stuff we look at for, for any market, right? You overbought, oversold, trend exhaustion divergences right i mean we all know yeah. when 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 the, when one market makes a new low but a related market does not uh, yeah. or and or a technical indicator whether it's momentum or breath does not confirm that low uh, and sentiment is bombed out like when all of those things start lining up you know you've got the potential of of a major inflection point and that's just true in commodities or bonds yeah. or equities or any other market I love yeah, that you articulated um, the checklist of all the items you look at before yeah. deciding there's an inflection point. And this is where experience comes in, right? I mean, I've been doing this for a while, as of you guys. Um, but you, you learn, like you learn from cycles. And, and you had a question about, you know, sometimes indicators work for one cycle, then they don't. You know, time cycles can be very notorious about that um, mm -hmm. uh, on that on that matter and and but you know experience helps you uh, or at least it helps me look at market history and say well you know this kind of reminds me like the 94 cycle and and there there are elements to this particular cycle for the stock market that are very similar you know this is back in the greenspan days where he raised rates out of the blue um, and the two year yield was a, a very helpful guide to um, explaining how far that corrective period had to go. It wasn't really a bear market by traditional uh, measures. We call it a stealth bear market because we kind of went sideways for a year while the Fed was raising rates. But the two-year yield um, what was the kind of the proxy for the P.E. ratio in the stock market. And it's been the same thing this time. Uh, but that's one example. There are other, you know, but then the analog kind of falls apart because inflation, that was a preemptive strike. This is certainly not a preemptive strike. Uh, but then I look at the 1940s, right? I mean, the World War II era, there are a lot of similarities between that and COVID. Obviously, COVID is not a world war, but maybe it's 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 a, it's a parallel to it. Uh, certainly the fiscal and monetary policy right. response, right. the inflation, the supply chain ball. And actually think about it, right? The economy was remobilized or mobilized to enter World War II. And then when the GIs came back, that economy was geared to mobilizing for war, not for bringing these people back in. They all to find jobs, right? And, mm -hmm. and so there are definitely some parallels. You know, I, I mm -hmm. interviewed uh, maybe a month ago, I interviewed Ben Bernanke, and I asked him about that. And I was really impressed by the level of detailed knowledge he has of that period in the late 40s. You know, you had the, the inflation hangover. You had everyone coming back. The, the economy wasn't able to meet that. You know, it's very, very similar to, to today. And by the way, that was a 26% decline. This was a 25% decline. So so again, you know, it, their history rhymes. It doesn't repeat. And But I take different pages from different pieces of history. And that's how you build kind of a, you know, a, a holistic view of this cycle, borrowing from past cycles. Because you know, we, we know market behavior is a subset of human behavior, right? And so that's why the market does tend to do the same things in different settings, in different ways, but it's still people buying and selling. And 
they rarely make rational decisions at both the, either the highs or the lows, <laughs> as we know. Yeah, well said. You know, you be, being a macro strategist with a global perspective, touching on all asset classes, and you have a very in-depth knowledge of cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain, et cetera, as well. So we have a lot to talk about. And I know you have somewhat of a hard stop today. So why don't we, why don't we just jump right into where we are in the markets today? Because I think the, the, the sort of the intro to this discussion really highlights some critical points that we're dealing with today as investors. And, and that is probably at the sort of overarching level is, is are we in some sort of a regime transition? And if we are, what tools that have worked in a deflationary environment are just not going to work going forward? What tools have worked through deflation but will still be valid going forward? Perhaps that dis discounted cash flow, that you know, the time value of money seems to always be relevant no matter what. Um, so maybe let's start with this. So, so equities, do you think uh, equities have bottomed um, in this cycle? Um, I, I think they have. But at the same time, I think we're lacking a compelling bullish catalyst. Not that there ever is one at the bottom, right? I mean, exactly. I mean maybe, the, maybe there is, but you don't, most people don't see it. Sure. But, yeah. You know, I've, I've been, you know, so we have the, you know, it's good to distinguish between the market cycle and the secular trend right. in this, yeah. uh, for this conversation. And, uh, and it's my view that uh, we've been in a new secular or in a secular bull market since the 09 low, right? Uh, mm -hmm. the, the 2000s was a was a period um, of, of secular kind of a lost decade, just like the 70s were. I mean, inflation was different, of course. But but since 2013, when the S&P for the first time made a new all time high following the 2000 and the 2007 peaks, uh, I became a secular bull. And my thesis has been that that's driven by demographics, you know, aging baby boomers solving for income at a time when there is no income to be gotten from the bond market. You know, it's part of the, the great moderation of story. Um, and so uh, and part of it is financial engineering, right? It's declining interest rates, low tax rates, uh, lots of share buybacks, financial engineering in, in that sense. Uh, and that's produced outsized valuations, right? If you, if you think about what companies do, um, you know, what they earn is one thing, their profit margin is another thing, but how much of those earnings they return to shareholders via dividends and or buybacks is a very important component. And it's one where the U.S. Uh, kind of crushes the rest of the world because the rest of the world, like Japan, Europe and other countries, other regions don't have this kind of buyback shareholder mentality. Um, so in the U.S., you know, 80% of earnings are returned to shareholders via buybacks mm. and dividends. The rest of the world's about 50 or 60%. That 80% commands a premium because if you're a shareholder, if you're an investor, you get more of your earnings back. You're going to pay more for that, right? You're going to pay more for each dollar of earnings when when that happens. So those those elements have all been part of the secular thesis um, and declining interest rates and there and by and you know which which implies low inflation and a low volatility of inflation uh, is part of that story. So if we are in a turning into turning a, a, a page to a higher structural inflation uh, regime, you know, that makes you wonder about this whole uh, this whole driver, the set of drivers for the secular bull market. Uh, I, I, for one, am not ready to conclude that the bond market or bond yields have ended their 40-year secular downtrend. Um, I do think I, I don't think we're going to make lower lows. It's hard, hard to do with the 10-year reaching 0.3% back in 2020. Uh, but um, if there's one area where mean reversion has paid off, it's in in long yields, right? If you look yeah. look at a chart of 40-year chart of, of yields, um, every time you if you do like a Bollinger Band or something like that through it, every time you reach so many standard deviations above that falling trend line. Uh, it's it's paid you to to buy buy bonds and do the opposite uh, on the other side of that, um, and so I'm not ready to to conclude that that four decade run of mean reversion is coming to an end, but but you know it it could right and and from what we from what I can see, it's hard to imagine inflation. I think inflation has peaked for this cycle, but. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to go back to 2% by next year. I think mathematically it's very hard for that to happen. That puts the Fed in play, right? Because then all of a sudden the Fed put is maybe more out of the money than it used to be, right? It, it, over the past, since the financial crisis, whenever there was anything wrong with the market, the Fed could just go full on and ease uh, as much as it, as it could uh, to help financial conditions recover. 
uh, because inflation was not an issue. Inflation was MIA, was below the Fed's target of 2% you know, for 15 years. Uh, mm-hmm. That dynamic seems to have changed now, right? And even if we go from 9% down to 4 which is a huge improvement, that would still be 4 and not 2 right? So that's still an environment where the Fed can't really respond in the same way that it has over the past decade and a half since the Great Recession. So that so there are a lot of ways you can you can think of that maybe the next five or ten years are going to be different from that perspective. And maybe this secular bull market, which historically has lasted about you know 18 years or so, this one is shorter, right? 09 to 22, that's only 13 years. Maybe that's all there is. You know, maybe maybe we're kind of at a more mature phase of that secular bull market than than I thought we were. And and you know, this is one caveat, of course, for technical analysis. Like when you think about secular trends and you look at past secular bull markets, you know, 80s and 90s is one of them, 50s and 60s is another one, the 20s is a third one. You know, that's a sample size of three over yeah, 150 right. years like you 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 can't like a quant would laugh you out of the room if you built a model on that so we yeah. can learn from history but there is a limit to what we can do and this secular bull market may have ended in january and you know and there would be still be nothing wrong with the examples from the past it's just that you, you can only do do so much with it so so i i'm a little bit on the fence as to whether the secular bull market's still intact, I think it is. Um, and and one of the characteristics of secular bull markets is not that there aren't recessions in bear markets. There are. They're, they're basically you know almost as many, but they tend to be uh, shorter, faster, and the recovery tends to be much quicker. I right? think about the 2018 yeah. decline in the fourth quarter. Think about the pandemic decline, 35% in five weeks. It was reversed in no time, right? That those are hallmarks of secular bull markets, and um, if if it turns out that we recover all of the losses so far, we've recovered half of the losses from January to June. Uh, maybe maybe that it's still alive, and and you know we have the one percent tax potentially coming on share buybacks, un, unknown what what kind of effect that's going to have on on the financial engineering leg of this stool, but you know the the, the proof is in the price action, and and that of course is technical analysis 101 is like you don't necessarily need to know why things are happening you just look yeah. at the charts because the charts is like i said is the collective consciousness of of every person who is interested in in markets and if if this thing recovers uh if it continues to recover as quickly as it has so far then that would be you know anecdotal evidence that the bull market's still intact yeah but, but know, in terms of the cyclical uh, in terms of the cyclical picture yeah you know, I look at all the, the technical stuff. I look at breath. I look at retracements and things like that. And it's interesting um, how little we can actually tell. Like, so we've recovered We've recovered half of the decline. Um, we're up 17% from the low. Uh, percentage of stocks above their 50-day moving average is at 90, 92%. It was at 2% just in the middle of June, right? That's a pretty yeah, rapid recovery. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. when, I, when I stack up bear market rallies going back 100 years versus new cyclical bull markets, um, the only chart where I can see a distinction in terms of how do I know which one it is, uh, is not from breadth or the, the magnitude of the, of the advance, because it's very hard to know in real time whether something is a bear market rally or a new bull market. The only hint that I think that I can find is that bear market rallies almost never retrace more than half of the decline. And right now we have retraced half of the decline. Uh, So if we continue to build on this rally, despite the fact that momentum is overbought, like the stochastics are overbought, the breadth numbers, which I just mentioned, are, are overbought. If we continue to build on this, despite all that happening, then the only conclusion I can draw is that it's a new cyclical bull market because, you know, overbought in a bull market is a sign of strength overbought in a bear market is a sign to get the hell out. And right. that 50% retracement uh, is, I think, is is the key. So we're, we're kind of at a fork in the road here that will prove probably to be quite actionable. I'd, I'd be curious uh, on your, your thoughts regarding, because I, th- I think this might in, in turn help inform or at least give us things to watch out for in terms of whether or not we're in a secular bull market still or not. And, and that is... Um, are, do you subscribe to the view that we, like Jeremy Grantham might say, that we just went through this bubble of everything type of a situation where 
um, when you when you look back at every secular bear market, a bull market that's ever happened and, and terminated, they've all terminated in a bubble. In when you look back at what happened in 21, I mean, you could make the case that, that equities were in a bubble. I mean, we had more stocks trading above a 15 times price to sales ratio in the S&P than we had in, in 99, in 2000. Um, we had, you know, real estate being purchased in the metaverse for a million dollars, which 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 had the very it sounded seemed to be a, a pretty good parallel to tulip mania, but you know at least tulips <laughs> they at least existed in real time, and you guess you hold them in your hands. This this case here was it was all digital. You couldn't even, but people were throwing millions of dollars at, at these things, and we had you know bonds around the world went to a negative interest rate, which I mean if that's not a bubble, I don't know what is. You know, mm-hmm. is it conceivable that we actually did just go through this bubble of everything? And that's in our rearview mirror. And when you have bubbles of that magnitude in your rearview mirror, what comes forward after that is a decade of stagflation and stag, you know, you know, sideways markets at best. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a very good observation. Um, and, you know, that deals actually with, you know, a, a fundamental way of looking at that is with the, with, with the, the, the Schiller CAPE, right? The cyclically adjusted PE, which is the PE ratio using 10-year average earnings. Um, that Schiller Cape is very predictive in in predicting forward 10-year returns. So the PE does tells you nothing about the next year or the next two years, but it tells you a lot about the next 10 years. And so from that perspective, uh, the the highs in 2020 um, were instructive in that we did reach you know very high valuation levels um, and you know it you think about it this way right you buy a bond and you hold to maturity your return is the yield that you're buying when you get the bond right so if you're buying a bond at 2.78 percent uh, and you never sell it that's your return same with the pe ratio right if you're paying 30 times earnings for a stock the hurdle rate to actually get a return is very high because you're paying a lot for each dollar of earnings. So when you think about bubbles, it's always about valuation. Uh, it's it's not about price, um, but of course they're they're highly related. Of course, um, so when I think about this cycle, there certainly were elements of a bubble. You look at the meme stocks, non-profitable growth stocks. Um, you know those peaked in February of 2021 and fell 50 percent to the June low. At least. And, and they've and yeah at, at least yeah, some of them did more but I look at the the different Goldman Sachs yep. indices and right. down 50 percent they've retraced about 24 percent of that decline so they're up a lot but they've only retraced a, you know a small portion of that decline and those stocks should remain broken right because as you know the leadership of the last uh, move is rarely the leadership of, of the next move uh, you look at rates at bond yields and certainly, you know, uh, the the financial repression, it's not an overt repression, like the Fed has not capped interest rates like it did in the 1940s. But of course, we had 120 billion a month of QE during the pandemic period, and that only just recently ended. Uh, That's a form of financial repression, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, that pushed real rates using the tips market down to minus 2% levels, and of course, using the CPI far lower than that. And again, per the DCF model that we discussed earlier, you plug in a, an artificially repressed discount rate into the DCF model, you're going to get artificially elevated valuations, right? If you're if you're discounting a cash flow stream by an artificially low rate, you're going to get an artificially high present value. And and I actually modeled this. So back uh, maybe a year ago, you you could clearly see that if yields were 100 basis points too low, lower than they should have been, which you can demonstrate by just regressing like the Fed's balance sheet against yields and things like that. Uh, you plug that into DCF and and that made a difference of five PE points. Like the, mar- the market was trading at 25 times earnings a year ago or two years ago, uh, a year ago actually, um, when it should have been 20 times earnings. And, and, and I think that's a useful exercise because, you know, when you go on Twitter, or you look at people's newsletters, um, and, and technicians are not—I'm not isolating technicians. This, this is this applies equally to all all market pundits. But people like to be dramatic, and they like to say, you know, and and you know, GMO, as you mentioned, Jeremy Grantham, you know, everything is in a bubble. Okay, well, quantify that. Like, like, show me exactly how that is, and and that's what I try to do by saying, okay, if interest rates are 
100 basis points lower than they should have been. Uh, you put that into a DCF, it gets you a PE that's 25% higher than it should be. There's your, your asset price inflation. Now, is 25% a bubble or is it just you know an overvaluation? I don't really care. Like, they, like to me, that's not a, yeah. a, a, a hugely useful distinction. But a lot of that has been corrected, right? I mean, when the Fed went from uh, kind of permanently at zero, or at least that was the expectation, to now saying we're going to go to three and a half or maybe higher, uh, the bond market, as you know, had a, a massive sell-off. The first six months of this year were is something we haven't seen in decades where bond prices went down along with stock prices. Usually one goes up while the other goes down. So a lot of this dislocation that was driven by the Fed um, has been has been resolved. And so uh, if it was a bubble, uh, I think the bubble has burst and we're we're back towards some sort of balance. Uh, but if the market keeps running here uh, without the help from earnings, then it's by definition all valuation. Then maybe we go right back to where we were you know, a year ago, where you had all markets kind of financially repressed to be overvalued, both the bond side and the stock side. And so that's kind of how I see it. That would imply then that if that's the case, your, your latter description of the environment, which is valuation keeps a cap on things because because of the regime that we've transitioned to, that doesn't preclude cyclical bull and bear markets from happening, but it might put a cap on that secular outlook in the sense that you know if rates have gone sideways, you said rates are, are probably done going down, but they're not going to go up. So that implies somewhere between, not, not to put words in your mouth, but let's just say it's between you know one and a half and three percent. We just kind of find a range in there for the next several years. That could be the driver of the uh, the impending cyclical bull and bear market that we foresee. But you also mentioned um, a couple of things that I, I think can come together to help maybe bring some clarity as well. One is that we could say that there was a bubble in meme stocks and in parts of technology, et cetera. That's all been washed out, and so that that adds to the idea that perhaps the downside is less of a risk than it was before because the bubble has been taken care of. But you also mentioned that um, what led in previous bull markets tip, does not typically lead in the next bull market. So does that imply that whatever cyclical bull market we have that lies before us, it's not to be expected to be led by tech? And if so, what would you would you think? Yeah. So when you look at long term history, so I look at you know 150 years worth of real returns for the S&P, and I look at 10-year CAGRs, compound annual growth rates of different ratios, right? Stocks to commodities, bonds to stocks, yeah. growth to value, small to large, U.S. to non-U.S. Um, there, there's a super cycle there. You, you, you can clearly see it when you do a 10-year rate of change, you can yeah. see it. And growth to value, large to small, U.S. to non-U.S., stocks to commodities, they're all at that point where both from a timing and a price point of view should be peaking. Um, and again, that's a 10-year rate of change. That's a long time. You can see a lot of different things happening in that in that time. But it's I think it's interesting because if interest rates have bottomed for the secular trend, which I think is is kind of you know that's not a controversial opinion to have because they went almost to zero and now we have you know high inflation and even though the inflation rate is probably going to come down. It may not come down back to the Fed's target, and that's going to remove the Fed put to some degree. So you put those things all together, uh, you know, the 1% tax on buybacks, maybe that affects financial engineering. Um, it, it's not a stretch to see that even if the market goes to new highs, which is not a which is not a controversial opinion to have because if earnings don't fall out of bed, which during periods of inflation, they, they rarely do, right? Earnings right. generally hold up because they're a nominal mm -hmm. concept. Uh, companies sell into the nominal economy, not into the real economy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but if that discount rate stops being a tailwind, um, maybe it doesn't become a headwind, but it stops being a tailwind, then that's going to put a cap on valuations. And one thing we can learn from periods of inflation is that valuations always get cut, right? Uh, the earnings don't really skip a beat, uh, but the investors are smart enough not to pay for those earnings because they because it's a money illusion, basically. And so when I combine that with these charts showing these 10-year rates of change, and I look at demographics, right, the percentage of the U.S. population over 65, those are all kind of peaking in the next you know few years. And that tells me that 
it will be value uh, that's going to run the market in the coming years. And that would also argue that, again, maybe the bull market is not dead, but you know, part of the bull market, the secular bull market story since 2014 has been, you know, the FANG stocks, you know, the mega cap growers. And that growth was justified, right? I've looked at, at the nifty 50 stocks either in the late 90s or the early 70s. And again, in the last 10 years, um, the early 70s and the late 90s, those those ultra large cap growers, uh, which some of them were tech, others were other companies, at least back in the 70s, um, when they really ran away from the market, it was mostly valuation. And of course, and that's what a bubble is. It's always about valuation. This run has been fully justified by relative earnings. So the price has run, but the valuation has not. So I, I don't think that you know, Apple and Google and those companies, not not to mention specifics because I don't do individual stocks, but those mega cap growers um, have had an incredible run, but they're not in a bubble. The, the, the non-profitable tech, the meme stocks were in a bubble because they don't have any earnings. That's why they call them non-profitable growth stocks. Um, <laughs> those were in a bubble. And those I don't think are, are coming back anytime soon. But, you know, I think Apple is like 7% from its high, you know. So so if there's not a bubble there, then maybe that, that doesn't change the, the, the picture. But based on long-term charts, I think it's going to be value um, real assets over financial assets. And that by definition, implies that inflation is going to be a structural phenomenon and not just a cyclical one, because those are the sectors right. and styles that work with inflation. When you look at the last 20 years, I think at least 15, if not 20 years, one of the drivers of why these mega cap growth companies did so well was because there was a dearth of growth anywhere else. I mean, you know, we can say that the U.S. outperformed over the past whatever it is, 15 years. But if we're really being honest, what actually happened is that technology outperformed over the last 15 years. And the U.S. is the best ecosystem of technology on the planet. That's why the U.S. outperformed. And so on, on top of that, you had declining rates and discounted cash flows exploded because of that. So therefore, this is where we are today. So I, I get all that. And, and, if, and if it's changing, I can accept that it's changing. And, and trust me, if the charts change, I will go with that. And I'm starting to see some of it. But I always, I, just from a pure intellectual perspective, just curious, it's, it's my belief that value never actually works. What works is that catalysts happen in the economy to unlock the fundamental opportunity and potential of those companies that are otherwise deemed to be value. And when that happens, they become growth. So if I'm thinking about all, of, all the, the potential sea change of environment that you're, you're describing, like I'm thinking Europe starts to outperform because it's it's cheap, it's mostly industrial and financials and all these other things. Would that not imply for that to happen? Although we're seeing inflation, would that not imply that the real growth has to also come with that so that it's because growth has to unlock value. It's not just going to unlock because growth is doing poorly, you know, growth stocks, you know, value doesn't do well just because growth is doing poorly. In fact, from a relative perspective, growth stocks do poorly because value finally works. Mm -hmm. And we know why it hasn't worked for the last 10 or 15 years. What about it, the um, macro economy that you see going forward actually justifies fundamentally value working and ultimately becoming growth stocks? Yeah, no, it, it's a great question. And it's a good long term philosophical question. You know, you, most of the world is kind of trapped in a slowing demographics malaise or secular stagnation, right. you know, to use a, a common term for that. And the secular growers obviously worked very well for that because there was little growth to be found elsewhere. And without any inflation, there was no pricing power in the rest of the economy. We're seeing that change now. Of course, energy, you know, its earnings estimates are up 150%, but it's only 4% of the market, right? So it doesn't matter as much. And, and in Europe, you know, it's a lot of banks and, you know, you have low interest rates and you have problems in the, in the periphery. You have the same thing in Japan. Uh, so part of it is just sector composition. As you know, the U.S. is much more growthy. And the growth to value trade is the same trade as the U.S. versus non-U.S. trade because it's it's all about these very large cap companies doing very well, and they've built such powerful moats. You think about the network, you know, and we can we can talk about that with, with crypto because that's about networks as well. But once your network gets so powerful that it becomes impenetrable, you're pretty much golden. But you know what we saw in the first six months of this year is that these long duration stocks, as we call them, right? So these are companies where you're paying for a very long visible stream of earnings, which in cyclicals and in value stocks, by definition, you don't have because they're cyclical. But the caveat is that when you 
price a long duration stock, the discount rate, the interest rate matters a lot because you just, you know, plug that into the DCF, you know, a hundred basis point change in a discount rate for a high PE stock has a bigger impact than a hundred basis points for a low PE stock. And so that's why a lot of these companies got severely derated, even though their earnings were, were you know, didn't necessarily um, skip a beat. And so, um, so the growth, you know, story, does hinge on the interest rate story uh, to some degree. I mean, we're all going to have iPhones until till the day we die, probably. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Apple deserves a higher multiple than it gets now. And so it, it does come down to devaluation. Um, and, uh, you know, energy is only 4% of the market today. But back in the early 80s, it was any energy and materials were 27% of the S&P 500. Yeah. Uh, so so there, there's another element to that. But I, I like your way of thinking about how value stocks basically be, become growth stocks once you have more visibility on, on the runway. Um, and, of course, the dollar plays a role in, in that as well. And, and the dollar is to some degree driven by the policy divergence, right? The Fed has been very relatively proactive in terms of raising rates. I mean, that was still way behind the curve, right? I mean, it still had committed a policy error by not, you know, uh, ending QE earlier. And uh, that's neither here nor there now because it's in the past. But, you know, the ECB cannot raise rates as much as the Fed can because uh, if it does, uh, Italian spreads are going to blow out. And the Bank of Japan is not only not raising rates, it's it's doubling and tripling down on yield curve control to, to defend its uh, its JGB market. And so that divergence between the US tightening and the rest of the world, either not tightening as, as much or easing, that's what drives the dollar. We had the same thing happen in 2015, uh, tw into early 2016. Right. So right. once the market gets clarity on the end of this Fed cycle, which might be a recession forcing the end, or it might be inflation falling rapidly enough that the Fed doesn't have to go much above what we call the neutral rate or the natural rate, then I think the dollar can start to come down or at least stop going up. And then non-US markets at least have a fighting chance because they won't have that currency translation uh, you know, working against them. Right. You're in, you mentioned earlier that the leadership in the new phase of the secular bull market often doesn't reflect leaders going into periods of downdraft. And so on a relative basis, just even this summer, June and July, we saw healthcare outperform the S&P. And uh, in terms of sector allocation right now, industrials are outperforming on a relative basis. Would you see more of that being driven by technological innovations in those sectors that maybe weren't always uh, known as, uh, as technology leaders? And I'm thinking about automation and robotics and things like John Deere and Caterpillar and uh, and then within the healthcare side, we've talked about that global war against the coronavirus and all of the new developments in gene therapy or, or new technologies in terms of vaccine creation and the amount just invested in healthcare technology. Do you see those as the big drivers or do you think the industrial sector and maybe even healthcare are being driven by um, maybe intermarket elements like industrials being driven by the fact that commodities are, are so much higher now and there's profitability to be captured? I, I think it's it's a combination of both. I mean, biotech, healthcare. I think mm -hmm. I I would view that as part of the the mega cap growth leadership. I mean, biotechs are not mega cap by definition, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's parts of the consumer sector. You know, Amazon's considered a consumer stock. Uh, part of the biotech side. That's all these these long duration growth stories. Um, that and I don't think that's going away. Uh, maybe the valuation piece has has peaked, but but on the on the value side, uh, you mentioned industrials. You know, we have a we have a pretty significant geopolitical pivot going on. You know, reversing potentially the kind of the the twenty or the two decades long period of globalization, right? So, I mean, this is part of the, the Biden policy is to reshore supply chains. I mean, we all learned during the pandemic that, wait a minute, all of our medical stuff is built in China? Like, hello, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. national security, you know, that, that sort of thing. And and mm -hmm. so I think there's a, a push underway, and we see that in semiconductor chips already happening, to bring that back. And I, I think if the geopolitical, if that unipolar power structure we've had for so many decades where the U.S. was, you know, in charge, uh, fractures to a multipolar system where obviously China becomes a bigger player. And the result of that is that the arbitrage of labor and capital that was part of globalization reverses. 
and it happens obviously in a more modern way, right? If a company resource their supply chain, if an industrial company resources its supply chain back into the U.S., there's going to be a lot of robotics and, and automation involved. And uh, mm-hmm. if that creates a, a longer view on the visibility of profit margins and therefore profits, and if that makes those companies less cyclical because they're going to be less uh, vulnerable to the whims of globalization, uh, mm-hmm. then I, I could see companies like that catching a premium valuation-wise mm-hmm. that maybe they didn't get in the past. And so, and that's well beyond just, you know, if you're an energy company and the price of oil is here, you're going to make so much money. But part right. of it is also um, that, especially in the energy side, you know, we have this whole ESG movement, which I think is here to say. Um, mm-hmm. But but energy companies, you know, have gone through enough boom and bust cycles. And, and you know, we, we've lived through a, a lot of them where the shareholders, the investors in those companies are telling these energy companies, especially the, the energy service companies, is like, Stop drilling for new oil every time oil goes up $10. Like, just stop it. You know, exercise yep. some capital discipline. If yep. you're running a rise in oil prices, that's great. You're going to earn more. Give me some yep. money back as a dividend and call it a day. Don't don't start throwing a bunch of capital after it. And so between that and the ESG movement, which, of course, is also I don't want to say punishing, but it's a disincentive to drill more holes in the ground as well. That, I think, will actually help the energy and material sector from a long-term perspective as well. So maybe that feeds into kind of the secular story as well. Yuri, I know we're, we're bumping up against time, and I'm curious if we have time for one quick uh, moment to share your thoughts on crypto and blockchain, and then we'll we'll let you go. So yeah, can, can you help? Like I just, just this morning, just in preparation for, for asking you this question, I just, as I always do, I said, What's the difference between Bitcoin and uh, blockchain? And it's always people are excited about crypto, but what they end up talking about is blockchain because that's actually what matters. So crypto is just one way to use blockchain. And then so then it becomes a question of whether or not there's any value to crypto. Is it possible that it was just the easiest thing that we could do most immediately with blockchain? And it it shows you how it works, but it actually has no end use case. And it was a very famous um, strategist that at a very large mutual fund company who's the macro strategist who has a CMT charter once said, things may be very scarce, but if they have no use case, there's, there is no value. So you may- I wonder who that was. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, it's a great question. So what's unique about the, the digital asset space is that it is all about the blockchain. I mean, that that, that yeah. is a game changer, you know, cutting out the intermediaries and having that distributed ledger uh, that that's a that's a pretty powerful innovation that's going to be you know w- with us and 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 it's going to grow and expand um, the crypto the tokens right whether it's Bitcoin or some other token is is the way I don't know how exactly how to explain this but many blockchains have a token and that's how you add value to the blockchain. So, it, you know, when the internet was developed, there was no token, right? You you could buy a company that was developing their product on the internet, but you could not buy the ITTP, you know, protocol. Uh, in blockchain, you can, right? You have Ethereum, you have Bitcoin, you have other tokens that are a direct monetization of that blockchain. And so for me, it comes down to uh, the network effect, right? We, we talked about Apple, uh, like Apple has a gigantic network that's impenetrable. If I develop a better iPhone tomorrow, I'm never going to take market share away from Apple because their their moat is too strong. And I think Bitcoin and Ethereum are in that same position where, you know, you look at historical S-curves, adoption curves, Ethereum and Bitcoin are far and away, you know, the largest and, and they have that first mover ad- advantage. And I think that those trends are now established enough that they're not going to go away. And regulation is not going to make it go away. Regulation will actually help it because it will legitimize the space. It will give institutions a better sense of what where the guardrails are so that there is some protection there. Um, and it really just comes down at that point to the valuation Again, it's always about valuation more so than price. And Bitcoin's price is back to the 2020 levels, but Bitcoin's valuation, which I determine or define as the price to network ratio, so the price per millions of addresses, uh, is back to 2014 levels. So from that perspective, Bitcoin is cheap. Um, And if you think or if you believe, and this has to be part of your thesis if you're going to believe that, and if not, then you're not going to be interested in the space. But 
if you think that Bitcoin or Ethereum's network continues to grow in line with historical S-curves, whether it was internet adoption or mobile phone adoption or, or anything else uh, historically, and, and if that continues to grow up and to the right, then th th there is a, a play there, right? And then it's just a question of where, how fast that net network grows. If it grows slower than we think it does and the price is already above it, then yeah, Bitcoin's a sell. But if Bitcoin at 24,000 is you know, below that curve and it grows, it continues to grow, then it's a buy. And it becomes like a growth stock in that sense, right? If you're in a technology company and that technology company's network is growing and the price is below that projected network, it doesn't lend itself to a DCF because there are no cash flows in Bitcoin. But it's the same idea, right? You're projecting a growth rate and then you're comparing where the price is today versus that projected growth rate. And, you know, Metcalf's law is what we look at in crypto. And it says that if the network grows, the valuation will grow exponentially to that network, which is exactly what's mm -hmm. happened to Apple uh, and other other tech companies. So that's how I think of it. But the, the token yeah. is inseparable from the blockchain because the token is the way to participate in the blockchain. And that's what's unique about crypto versus Internet, you know, two decades ago. And the, you know, the S-curve that you mentioned, is, that's a critical input to the thought process for growth investing. I mean, if you can capture one of those S-curves, um, it's, it's invaluable. It'll make your career. And so and I it's get, all, and I it's get, all about the slope of that S-curve going forward. That, that's right. that's what's going to drive the, the value for Bitcoin, I think. I understand the S-curve of telephones back in the day, televisions, PCs. Radio. Radio. All that, Flight miles. They're all S-curves. What's easy to grasp in those S-curves is the use case of those things that are being mapped to that curve. I still don't understand what the use case is of Bitcoin, not blockchain. I totally get that. Like that's actually going to transform the economy in ways that we don't even know yet, much like the Internet has transformed our economy today, today in ways that we couldn't imagine 20 years ago. What's the actual use case of digital currency? Is it a currency or is it something else? And why is it on that S-curve? Yeah. Uh, I think it's a, it's a commodity currency. And, you know, I don't subscribe to the Bitcoin maximalist notion that it's going to replace the dollar. I think that's all nonsense. You know, the dollar, if anything, it will solidify the dollar's status as reserve currency. And I think the key missing link there, or not the missing link, but the key link is not so much Bitcoin, but the stablecoin market, uh, yes. not like Tether, which is very shaky or sketchy, but like Circle, others that are basically like money market funds, right? They're collateralized money market funds. They will soon be regulated. I think that's the first regulation that's going to come. And that's going to make the dollar more portable as a digital currency around the world, whether, whether or not the Fed comes out with a digital dollar or not, it, it almost doesn't have to because so the stablecoin uh, ecosystem will drive that and then Bitcoin will be the, the, the transaction layer. And I think, you know, Bitcoin, of course, is very volatile. It doesn't make it useful, uh, you know, to go buy your coffee, but it is useful and being used for large, large transfers uh, of, of assets, especially if you're in a regime that's not as friendly or stable as the U.S. is, right? You go to Nigeria yeah. or other, other countries. And, you know, again, the, the size of the network plays a, a role here, right? And, and the second, the L2 layers, right? So think about the payment layers on top of the L1 Bitcoin layer. You think about Strike, Lightning, things like that. If the ecosystem gets big enough and enough people own Bitcoin and own stable coins uh, and they start transacting with each other, but keeping their money within that Bitcoin ecosystem, the volatility angle doesn't matter anymore, right? The volatility only matters when you go from Bitcoin back into fiat and from fiat mm -hmm. back into Bitcoin. So again, the promise of the or the potential of, of a large network effect uh, will, I think, will, will correct you know, some of those challenges that, that Bitcoin has. But I think of it as a commodity currency. It has elements of gold, you know, at least potential. I, I think of it as the precocious younger sibling of gold. It's trying to be like gold, you know, but it's, it hasn't grown up quite enough yet. And so part of it, I think, is an aspiring store of value. Part of it is an aspiring payment system. It has not succeeded yet as that because it's too volatile. But, you know, as the network grows, I think it will probably get closer to achieving both of those. And then the stablecoin ecosystem will, will be a very important part of that. Fantastic.
You're in, uh, you finished your CMT exam. Uh, you took them in 1992, 1993, and wrapped up in 1996. Clearly, you were not learning about uh, Bitcoin and altcoins <laughs> at that time. What, what spurs your interest uh, these days? Where do you keep learning and uh, refining your toolkit? Uh, it's it's all macro all the time. Even with yep. something like Bitcoin, it's very micro, but it's also macro because the macro creates the narrative, you know. Mm -hmm. And and the macro two years ago was the opposite of what it is today in terms of you know uh, money printing till the cows come home. You know, you look at M2 growth, all that stuff. All of that is now uh, on the other side of that, but it doesn't make it any less compelling. So to me, macro is uh, and that's. Ultimately, what I do is macro and, you know, the technicals is part of that. The fundamentals are part of that. Uh, any asset class is, is fair game as far as I'm concerned. But to me, it's a never ending puzzle. Uh, it, it's a tremendous uh, intellectual stimulating exercise. It's like four dimensional chess, you know, yeah. and um, yeah. if I didn't do it for a living, I would do it as a hobby. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's a great thing to be involved with. And if I can impart some of my uh, accumulated experience over the last four decades uh, into sound bites that help our clients or people on Twitter make more informed decisions. Then I think we we all win. You know, whether they're clients of Schwab or Fidelity, I really don't care. If if they can make better decisions, you know, I'm, I'm never going to have answers, easy answers. There are no easy answers, right. but I can share pieces of the puzzle of what I've learned. And if people uh, can use that to make better decisions about their life savings, and in this country, in the U.S., it's a DIY you know uh, system, right? We have to save for our own retirement. We don't have some pension plan to do it for us. Um, mm -hmm. Then I think if we can make sound investment decisions, uh, then we all win. So that's ultimately what keeps me going on a daily basis. What a uh, what a worthwhile pursuit, Yurian. Uh, thank you so much for taking time with us today. I know uh, you've got many uh, many meetings to get to. Thank you very much for all of your insight and wisdom. We didn't even get to talk about you know a cookbook that you need to write and uh, know you know it. cycling memoirs <laughs> or what you're going to do at Burning Man. But uh, I, I'm going to be doing some TikTok videos for Fidelity while I'm cooking and uh, talking markets, and we're going to call them chopping and charts. So stay tuned. Chopping and charts. Oh, boy, that's awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. Appreciate yeah. your time right. today, and we'll nice see you again really soon. Awesome. Thank you. Be well. Fill the Gap is brought to you with support from Optima. In addition to candidate study of the official CMT curriculum, Optima provides a full video course on all of the material that candidates need to know for each level of the CMT exams. Each course is broken up into modules ranging from 15 to 45 minutes, depending on the complexity and length of the topics being covered. Learn more at Optima.com. Welcome to Fill the Gap, the official podcast series of the CMT Association, hosted by David Lundgren and Tyler Wood. This monthly podcast will bring veteran market analysts and money managers into conversations that will explore the interviewee's investment philosophy, their process, and decision-making tools. By learning more about their key mentors, early influences, and their long careers in financial services, Fill the Gap will highlight lessons our guests have learned over many decades and multiple market cycles. Join us in conversation with the men and women of Wall Street who discovered, engineered, and refined the discipline of technical market analysis.